You can be opening up your Bibles if you wish to Mark chapter 6. We'll be continuing there. And, uh, you know, reading the scriptures, um, and by the way, before I begin, I, in honor of Jim, I got a couple of dad jokes for you. Did you hear about the guy who put on a clean pair of socks every day of the week? By Friday, he couldn't get his shoes on. Barumpa. Did you hear about the dyslexic Satan worshiper? Yeah, he sold his soul to Santa. That wasn't as good, I don't think, but I liked it. All right. Our brother Jim has entered his rest, and that's what we're going to talk about first thing today. Turn over to Mark chapter 6, and beginning in verse 30, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Remember, they'd just been sent out on a limited commission, and they were coming back. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They were busy guys. You know, the Bible talks about being servants, right? Being workers, being busy about the Lord's business, right? And it speaks negatively. You know, you can go through the Proverbs. It speaks negatively about slothfulness and idleness, right? And we should be busy, servants in the, in the kingdom. Speaks about labor and work, but here we have Jesus, after the disciples are coming back, says, let's go, let's go rest a little while. Take a break. We need to rest. After his disciples return from their limited commission, he encourages them to come aside to a desert place and rest. Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that we are to be busy. We sing a song about it, right? Work for the night is coming, right? But we are to take a little time. You see, God created us that way. It's illustrated in the Sabbath, right? He had the Sabbath. He designated that for, for the Israelites beginning in the wilderness when they were wandering with Moses. God rested on that seventh day, and that was the example. The principle that served for the basis for the Sabbath. Jesus is saying we need to rest. We need to take a little time. In fact, in the Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish religion, there were many holidays that related to rest. You had, if you go to Leviticus chapter 23, you can read all about these. You had the Feast of the, of the Unleavened Bread, which required two days of rest. You had the Feast of the Harvest, or, or Pentecost, which required a day of rest. You had the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which was the tenth day of the seventh month. You had the Feast of Tabernacles, the fifteenth day of the seventh month. These required the first two were one day of rest. The Feast of Tabernacles was two days of rest. And you had trips to Jerusalem that had to be made. And sometimes seven-day trips. The Feast of Booze, which was a time spent in tents, was seven days of rest. That was prominent with the Israelites, prominent in the Jewish tradition and religion, commanded from God. In fact, there were approximately 70 days of rest. If you go back through Leviticus and the Old Testament, that were required of the Israelites and the Jews. Interesting concept, right? You, you can read the Bible and think, well, you know, we got to be busy, and we should be busy, and we should be servants. But a servant needs to take a little break. You know, he needs to take a little time every once in a while. And time with the Lord, right? I mean, Jesus is resting with the disciples. They don't necessarily realize what's going on there, but they're spending time with him. They're spending that time after they have been working. They're tired, having anything to eat. He's saying, let's go take a little break and relax a little bit. 
taking time to rest, of course, can have dangers, right? There's a couple of dangers to avoid. First, you can be too busy, right? Has anybody ever had that problem? You know, when I was a kid, you know, my dad never said you can be too busy <laughs> when he was making us do all those chores, right? Is it work? A little hard work never hurt anybody, right? But you can work too hard to the point where your life gets out of balance, right? You can have too much work, and you need a break. You need a rest, right? No man can just live a Christian life, really, unless he has time spent with God. Yeah, we can work, 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 but if we don't take the time to be with the Father, if we don't take the time to be with Jesus, we're going to lose our strength, right? We're going to lose that power. We're going to lose that ability to be devoted to him. We need a time of devotion. We need a time where we can pray and be with him and help that to strengthen us to put us to work. All right? We need a time to be refreshed, rejuvenated, right? Ready to go back to work and ready to be eager about it. Of course, there's two types of rest. There's a physical rest, refreshing the body, right? Getting a good night's sleep after afternoon naps, taking vacations, time away from your place, right? Right? That's kind of represented in all those feasts we just mentioned, right? Taking time to travel and see family, spend time with family, that can help give you strength. Also, we need to take time to be in devotion with the Lord. We really need to be doing that every day. I know that's tough. We get busy, right? We are busy, and you've got children and a big family, little family for that matter. You're busy, I know. I've been there. But you need to make that time to be with the Lord. It doesn't have to be any particular time. You know, we have examples throughout Scripture, right? Um, we have uh, Isaac, who liked to spend time with God in the evening. David and Daniel, morning, noon, and evening. Jesus, early morning. We get up before daybreak, go out into a private place to spend time with the Father. It doesn't have to be any special place. You can find your own private place. Isaac liked to spend time in the field. David, David in his own bed. Daniel in his room and Jesus in deserted places. This is a good example. A good idea that we need to be spending time with him. God made us with a need for rest. And it's interesting how that parlays into our spiritual life, right? We spend our time here on earth. We're just here for a short time. It's like a vapor that's here for a little while and vanishes away. And we need to be busy about the Lord's work. We need to be working in his honor, in his grace, right? And then eventually we will get that reward that he's promised, that rest. Interesting how that happens, beginning of time, right? Six days, he created the universe in six days, and then he rested on that seventh day. So that's a good thing. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't think I'm telling you you need to go sleep for hours and not do anything. But you need to do, you do need to take that time. It's a good thing to do. Well, let's move forward here and see what's next in our study of Mark, beginning in verse 32. It says, So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. 
But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Well, then he commanded them to take them all, sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. All right, here we have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. We all know this, right? We learn this when we're little ones, right? One of the better-known miracles. Jesus has compassion for the multitude. And remember, we've talked a lot about this multitude. A lot of them are here just to see what's going on. They're not necessarily interested in what he's telling them. They're not necessarily interested in following him. But they're hearing about all these miracles and stuff, and they're trying to find out what's going on. And so they're crowding him out. He has to go up on a mountain in a deserted place to speak. He says, well, it's late. We need to feed them. Apostles go, disciples go, well, what are we supposed to do? Go into town and buy bread? That, you know, that costs a fortune. You can't go to the grocery store and buy 5,000 people food. Not to mention the women and children who are not mentioned here. Probably more than 10,000 maybe. Who knows? <clears throat> Jesus has compassion for the people. Even though he knows most of them are never going to follow him, never going to believe, he has compassion and love for them. And so he says, go find what we have and feed the people. And they do that. Five loaves and two fish. From that, they're able to feed 5,000 men and more. What's this parable tell us about Jesus, really? Well, of course, first and foremost, he has compassion. Compassion is a, our Savior. Compassion is our God. So much so that he has compassion as a high priest who is living, reigning in heaven now, making intercession for us to God. And that compassion... He was able to perform a miracle and show who he was, his love for the people, so much so that they had, what, a hundred times more than what they started with. Amazing, amazing miracle when you think about it. Yeah, we, we've known this for so long, you kind of don't even think about it anymore. Imagine what it would be like if you were an adult hearing this for the first time. You think, that's crazy. But he did it. He showed his compassion. He showed his power, the power to feed all these people. The sort of power that was overwhelming, really. I mean, he, he provided more than what was needed, a hundredfold. He just kept 
coming and coming, I guess. And also, something else I want you to notice that we kind of missed in there. He made sure everything was done in order. Did you notice that? He says there, he divided them up into ranks and groups. He made things orderly. And that made things more efficient, I would guess. My imagination would say that that was required to get everybody fed. And it made everyone happy, right? I mean, can you imagine? You got 5,000 people, and it's, they're feeding these people here, but it's been 30 minutes. I'm still waiting for my food. I don't imagine that was going on. Because of that orderliness that was going on, they're able to feed them and feed them quickly. Well, what's it reveal about man? What's it reveal about people or people? What's it reveal about us? Well, first, there's a misunderstanding, right? Uh, these people knew about a Messiah to come. They knew about a prophet who was to come into the world that we read about in John 6. But they're not understanding anything about him. They're wondering, could this be the guy? But they think he's coming to set up a literal kingdom, right? And we know now that that was not the case. We know now that his kingdom was not earthly. But these people are wondering about there. As it was foretold by Moses, as it was talked about by Peter and Acts, they want to know if he's going to be a literal king, if this is the guy, right? But his ways are different. And so perhaps that should help us to think about when we make presumptions, right? When we presume, we know what God's will is. That doesn't always work out like we think it's going to, does it? In our lives, in our friends' lives, right? We need to be careful about what we presume in our lives. <clears throat> not only that, these man is very materialistic, is he not? They sought Jesus for the wrong reason. Turn over to John chapter 6. Let's read what... John's Gospel says about this. <clears throat> John chapter 6, beginning in verse uh, 26, he says, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but, but, you, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said, And what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the man in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Okay, you can imagine what they're thinking now. What in the world is he talking about? And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who commits to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Wow, that's a pretty interesting set of verses. You can imagine what the people are sitting there hearing going, what? Notice verse 41, then the Jews then complained about him. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And he said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one came to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Here we see about one of the reasons for the manna in the wilderness. Isn't it interesting when we go back to the Old Testament and the things that occurred to the Israelites were foreshadowing of what was to come. Almost everything they did, even to the manna that was fed to them in the wilderness. Here's Jesus using that example that they knew about. I mean, they had pieces of it in the Holy of Holies, in the ark. And he's telling them, God fed you, your ancestors in the wilderness. Now I am the bread that leads to life. Wow. Of course, there's someone, what in the world is he talking about? Read on here. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So these people are very materialistic, right? They're seeking him to get their fill. He knows that. And he uses that opportunity to express to them who he is. They still don't get it. They're quarreled among themselves. What is he talking about? But he explains to them that he is the bread of life. He who believes on him, which is the work of God, will have eternal life. Do we today ever do that? 
come to church so we'll be fed physically? Or are we truly here to be fed spiritually? Are we truly here to eat of the bread of life? And I don't mean that literally. Are we coming here because we got buddies here that we want to see? Which is good. Or are we coming here to be with the God of heaven? Because he's here amongst us right now. Are we partaking of the bread of life? He who abides in him and abides in the Father, just like he said. And he who does that will be raised up to eternal life. Man, that's, that's a pretty amazing statement right there. Don't you want that? The people were materialistic and also they had a dullness. Right? They're complaining about this guy who just fed them. <laughs> For crying out loud. Who does he think he is? I mean, I guess they hadn't grasped yet that they only had five loaves and two fish, you know, and fed five, ten thousand people. They hadn't grasped it. They're complaining. They're dull. Their hearts are hardened, right? Spiritually, they're distraught. They struggled over his sayings, even to the point of quarreling, even to the point where many of his followers left him. They said, we're done. This guy's crazy. Can you imagine? Do we get that way today, though? Do we demonstrate a similar dullness today? Unwilling to learn? Unwilling to read and study and be in prayer. Unwilling to apply what we have learned in our lives so that we can grow spiritually and be of service to the Father. If that's the case, maybe you need to think about these miracles a little bit. What he did for these folks, right? The signs he showed to show who he was and the statements he made. Well, let's move on, beginning in verse 45 of chapter 6 there. Let's see what happens next. I mean, this gets more interesting by the day, doesn't it? Verse 45, let's see. Actually, yeah, verse 40, uh, 45. It is written in the prophets. I'm sorry, I'm in John. That's why it looked weird. All right, hold on a second. Verse 45, Mark 6. Immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then when he saw the straining of rowing, then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed, 
in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. All right, here we have one of those other great miracles that we always know about, Jesus walking on the water. I mean, we have a lot of songs written about this too, don't we? <clears throat> have you ever really felt alone? I mean, really, really felt alone. Even some, to the point where you, you may have wondered, where's Jesus? Where's God right now? I don't know. That's a pretty desperate place, I would think. I don't know that I've ever felt that way. Maybe someone in here has. And I can imagine that that's a pretty, uh, pretty bad place. Just a desperate, awful place, you know? Maybe this miracle is something that you could uh, think about. If they ever have that issue, right? This miracle was revealed in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. And what I want you to notice is what's really going on here. Yeah, we know about the miracle walking on the water. But Jesus, in the first three verses, goes to pray. Interesting, right? Verses 45 through 7. He prays as they're rowing across the Sea of Galilee. He goes on top of the mountain. Even in their busy schedule, he's still taking time to pray. He lets them go on, but he needs his alone time. What do you think he's praying about? It doesn't say necessarily what he's praying about, but my imagination, my thoughts would say he's praying for those disciples. He's letting them go on so he can pray for them and pray that their ministry is going to be wonderful, pray for their safety, pray for their understanding that they can know who he is. After all, they've just heard some pretty powerful statements. It says their hearts still are hardened too. They're not understanding about the loaves, about that miracle. While the apostles were rowing, he spends time alone with the Lord, with God. Two vivid scenes. He's praying on the mountain. The disciples are rowing in the sea. Jesus prays while we're working. Did you know that? If nothing else, that might be something you need to get from this. Even when you're in a desperate place, when you're alone, Jesus is praying for you. He's there. He's, he's making intercession to the Father for you. That's very scriptural. He's praying while the disciples are rowing in the sea. He's praying while apparently the wind picks up. He's praying while they're getting a little weary. And in the last few verses, they see him walking on the water and they cry out. They're a little scared. They see him. They think he's a ghost. What is going on here? You can imagine they're in a little peril. Matthew in chapter 14 says they were tossed by the waves. And he's passing in the fourth watch of the night, which would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. Not exactly the most pleasant time to be in this situation, right? Disciples saw him, thought it was a ghost, and cried out. They were probably pretty superstitious about this, too. Remember how King Herod thought he was John the Baptist raised from the dead? Who could blame him, right? Given the circumstances, they're greatly troubled. What does Jesus do? 
First and foremost, he speaks comfort to them. He has compassion on them. He says, do not fear. It is I. I'm here. Maybe in those times when we've had tough situation, maybe in those times when we've been very alone, or at least felt that way, this would be something to remember. He's here. Yeah, he's not left you. He's not going anywhere else. He's praying for you. He's with you. Let's go over and read the part of Matthew that talks about what Peter did, though, real quick. Mark doesn't mention it. But let's go over there in Matthew 14 and just see real quick. <clears throat> Verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, and if, it, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Get a little more information there, don't we? He didn't just come in the boat. He had to save Peter and pull him into the boat. And there's that faith thing again, right? That faith that we need to have so much so that we can walk on water. You remember? Parable of the mustard seed. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, move, and it would do it. If nothing else, this parable should help you to understand the great power of our God. The great compassion he has for us. The willingness to be with us in our time of need. The idea that he's praying for us. And the promise that he's coming back. He brought great, he brought great power and comfort to his disciples. Just like his coming is going to bring us peace. Right? Do you believe that? Do you believe the peace and the joy that you're going to have at his second coming when he raises us up? For now, we're like the disciples, right? We're rowing around, fighting the storms of life. But we have that promise. We know he's alive and well, reigning in his kingdom, making intercession for us, and he's going to raise us up in the end. His coming is going to be the greatest storm ever, right? There's going to be great wailing for those who are not prepared. But for us who are seeking and looking for his coming, it's going to be the greatest moment ever. Just imagine what kind of joy you're going to have when he's here. Seeing, imagine the peace, the comfort. We're done. The work is done. And now we get to spend eternity with him. Maybe you don't think that's a big deal. 
maybe you need to read through the parables and see how he interacted with his disciples and meditate on what he did and his compassion and the way he provided and the great power that he had. Maybe that's something that would change your attitude, change your focus, change your heart. He's coming, and we need to be ready, and it's going to be great. Read on real quickly, Mark 6 there, verse 53. When, he, when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about beds, those who were sick, to, whatever, to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Here we have the healings in Gennesaret. Following the walk on the water and the other miracles, there's many more miracles that occur. He's just going around and people are running out there and putting sick people in front of him or beside him, behind him, just so they could touch him. Can you imagine that scene? But you know what? Everybody that touches him is made well. There's no failure. In Gennesaret, when Jesus' disciples anchors the boat, that's about uh, three miles along the Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Lake of Gennesaret in Luke 5. It has a very natural beauty. It's a very fertile area. You've got all kinds of trees, palms, figs, walnuts, olives, grapes, other things. And you can imagine there's multitudes of people in that area. So I cannot imagine the number of people that were healed by him. It had to be a great amount. It's similar to the healings of Peter in Acts 5 when he's in Jerusalem during the early days of the church. He was a Paul, and that we read about in Acts 19 in Ephesus during an extended stay while he was on his third journey. <sighs> What's these healings tell us? When Jesus healed somebody, it, it worked. They were healed. When Peter or Paul healed somebody, it worked. They were healed. When you read uh, Paul's example, they were taking handkerchiefs from him. Remember that? And as long as they could just touch the handkerchief and they were healed. You can answer it. What's this do? Well, it confirms Jesus' claim, who he is. People who saw the signs begin to make the connection that this is the prophet that came into the world. Jesus did refrain from doing this on one occasion. Remember we read that a couple weeks ago back in his hometown? Because of their lack of faith, he did not do much work there. But when he does work, it works. Today you have some interesting people you'll see on TV, you know, these old faith healers. I hadn't seen much of that lately, doesn't seem like. Seemed like back a few years back, it was very prominent, wasn't it? You had these guys would have these, I don't know, conventions or whatever, and people would come to be healed. And they weren't really healed. They may have thought they were. Or maybe they just had a mindset that they were healed or something. But most of them were disappointed. And see, that's the big difference. That's how you can know this was from God. When Jesus or the apostles performed miracles, people were healed. 
they never failed at it. They didn't necessarily do it for everybody. But when they did, they went away joy, joyous. They went away healed. And they went and told everybody about it. Big difference. Once the word of God was completely revealed and confirmed, we no longer had the need for these miracles. We can read about that in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. When the perfect came, the shadow went away. We have the word now. We can read about these miracles. We don't need them anymore. But understand that these healings were great things, and it was going on all over the region. When you read about these miracles, you don't necessarily think, but have you ever thought about how many people were healed in this time? Hundreds of thousands, maybe? I don't know. No telling how many were here in Gennesaret, right? Everywhere he went. Interesting concept, right? We have a God who loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I know we don't necessarily think about that eternal life all the time, but maybe it's something we need to focus on a little bit. We need to have a little devotion and think about what he has promised us. And that needs to motivate us when we pray. Yeah, we need to take a time to rest and be in devotion and prayer, but that needs to make us be motivated to work and get busy in the kingdom. All right. Time is up. Thanks for being here. <clears throat>